Um, cool. Well, tonight uh, we are going to talk about, um, we're going to be in the book of Haggai, or if you grew up in church, for some reason, he called it Haggai. Why? I don't know, but I'm, I'm recently, as I've been going through Haggai, um, recently realizing that it's not Haggai. There's no reason for that, but yet that's what we did for forever. Um, so if you go ahead and turn to Haggai, um, if you're looking for it, it's one of the, uh, the prophets towards the very end of the Old Testament. There's Haggai, then there's Zechariah, and then you don't forget Malachi. Um, so, and then you're in Matthew. So if you go to the New Testament, go back, uh, go back a couple, and um, you can very easily miss it because it's like two pages long. <laughs> Uh, or you can go to your concordance, or you can pull up in your in your uh, your cell phone. But um, anyways, we are going to be talking about uh, relative values. What do you value? Okay, and that's that's the subject for tonight. So um, are you guys you guys ready to dive right in? Yeah. Cool. We are in Haggai chapter one, and we're going to start in verse two. We're going to read through verse six. So. Um, Here we go. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves to be living living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Some translations say consider your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for letting us come here. Um, Lord, we thank you for this university. Uh, We thank you for the the freedom to, to gather together and worship your name on a a public university campus. And so, um, God, we're grateful. We ask you tonight, um, Lord, speak to our hearts. Um, Ask us, um, search our hearts, search uh, search our hearts to let us know what we value uh, most in this world. Um, Lord, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Cool. So the book of Haggai, it's pretty small. Um, If you have a non-digital Bible with you tonight, who has a non-digital Bible? Who has like an actual hard copy? Cool. If you don't have one, if you don't have one with you, go dust it off your shelf and bring it um, and read it. If you uh, if you actually don't have one, um, go get one. Cool. Um, in my Bible, the Book of Haggai takes up almost two pages, so it's pretty small. Um, this is great and terrible when reading. Great because it takes you all of five minutes to read through it. And it's terrible because often we confuse substance with volume and give priority to larger books. Um, But here in this little book of Haggai, the Lord has left us a message that might be one of the most timely messages we could hear in the culture we live in today. All right. So the Lord begins by calling out the people of Israel's true intentions. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, you say. Now, if we stop there, we wouldn't realize that this is a rebuke, but we'd probably think of it as a statement. In life, there are times for everything. 
In fact, David's son Solomon writes about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, and I'm going to go through that really quick. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. That's a good one. A time to tear, uh, to tear down and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There's a lot of times in there. That's what my, my son Ransom heard me um, listening to this. And he's like, it's, he says time over and over and over again. I'm like, you're right. You might even look at this scripture um, and think that God is telling Israel that it isn't time to build his house, except that he doesn't stop with that statement. Then the Lord spoke through Haggai to the people after revealing their hearts and says... Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains in ruin? Here's the question God is asking, and here's the question I'm going to ask you. Whose house are you building? Yours or God's? Whose house are you building? Yours or God's? Another way to ask this is, are you building your own kingdom or are you building God's kingdom? Uh, my thoughts go to the king that is known in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, King David. Uh, the Bible tells us, uh, tells us stories. Um, this is kind of cool. The Bible tells us stories how they happen. So oftentimes um, we get insight into a particular person's dirty mail. If you're, reading the, if you're reading the Bible, some people are like, well, so-and-so had like five wives, so why can't I have five wives? And my argument there is always... Did you see what happened? Did you see? <laughs> Stick to one, please. It's much better. So David was not blameless in all that he did, but there was never a doubt about where his heart really stood. Okay? The Bible says that after the Lord removed all of David's enemies from every direction, he was living in his palace. He told his friend Nathan, who was a prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. He then proceeded to make plans to build the temple of God. Now the Lord stopped David and told him it wasn't time for the temple to be built. But the thing to take away from this story um, is this. A person after the heart of God will choose to build God's house over their own. A.W. Tozer says that every person has responsibilities and things that must get accomplished. We have work, family obligations, and so on. Um, but where our minds go when we are at rest, when we're resting, shows what really desires. Right? You have responsibilities. Do those responsibilities. Well, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you shuck those responsibilities, right? David's heart was the Lord's. Where does your relaxed life go towards? What does your heart truly desire? When you have time, when you have time to rest, when you have time to sit there and your responsibilities are at bay, or you finished, where does your relaxed heart go to? Does it go to the Lord? What God is saying in the scripture in Haggai to the people is that there really is a time and a season for everything in life, but the lie that they bought into is that their happiness 
is more important than God's rights on their lives. Not only did God say, say that to the, the Israelites through Haggai, but I believe he's asking us to examine our hearts about the same lie that has infiltrated our culture tonight. A long time ago, um, me and our great and wonderful pastor, Daniel Young, we went to one of our friend's houses. Um, this is really the guy that discipled us uh, or began the process of discipling us. For the very first time, we showed up at his house, and our lives were changed forever. We're sitting there after being served um, a chai latte. Any of you guys know what that is? Any Starbucks lovers? So a chai latte made from our friend's new espresso machine, and he asked us a simple question. This question challenged me because he never actually gave us an answer, but instead searched our own hearts through this question. See, good questions are an art form that we should always be thinking about and always be chewing on in order to direct people back to reality. So think of good questions to ask your friends. Um, in our friend's room, drinking my chai latte, I was asked this question. Dane, whose happiness is more important, yours or Daniel's? First time we've ever been sitting in this room with this guy and he asked me, whose happiness is more important, yours or your, your best friend's? To be completely honest, I'm not sure if I made uh, if he made me the latte before the question so it would hit harder as I'm sitting there sipping, enjoying my life, um, or if it was just my own securities and the reality of my heart coming out. But the question slapped me in the face hard. I don't even remember if I answered in Daniel's favor or my own, but I do remember that when he asked Daniel the exact same question, Daniel answered the exact opposite I did, knowing that logically one of us would get it right. And one of us would get it wrong. So it probably went something like this. Dane, whose happiness is more important, yours or Daniel's? Me. Daniel's, of course, totally convicted of my own life and the reality that that probably isn't true. Our friend, wow, you're so self-righteous. I can't believe you. Our friend turning towards Daniel. Daniel, whose happiness is more important, yours or Dane's? Daniel, looking like someone caught in a trap, my happiness, our friend, you're so selfish. (laughs) Can you imagine being in a room and you don't know the right answer? You want to give the right answer. And so, (laughs) anyways, um, you see, this is a searching question. There is an actual answer that is true to actual reality. But what the question really says is, do you live your life as though your friends are more important than yourself? Now, the answer comes, becomes reality to the person and the situation. It doesn't mean that the way they live their life is right, but it does make you ask yourself, what's important to you now? So right here and right now, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll, I'll tell you, it isn't an easy question, but it's worth coming to an honest conclusion so you know how to move forward with the truth of it. If you're anything like I was so long ago in that room, you already know the right answer. I'm not asking you to answer based off of what you know is right, but answer based off of what is true in your own life. So here it is. Are you ready? Whose happiness is more important, yours or God's? Whose happiness is more important, yours or God's? In your life right now at this moment in time, whose happiness is more important? It's a searching question, right? Okay, continuing in Haggai. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. One of our heroes of the faith, G. Campbell Morgan, um, yeah, if you, if you ever come across a book, buy it, and then I'll buy it from you if you don't want it. Um, he says that it's most likely not referring to the physical reality of Israel, uh, but to the heart's longing for the eternal, and I tend to agree with him. Have you ever taken time to step back and examine your life? I remember the very beginning of my search for real meaning in life. I was actually in eighth grade, which is kind of young. Most people are like, wow, you were thinking about that stuff? And the answer is yes, life was leading that way. Um, I was in eighth grade and had everything I wanted. I was accepted by my peers. Girls actually liked me, which was new for me. I hit puberty and grew six inches that year. And on the outside, had everything put together in life. Good grades, good character, and a good kid were some of the words people probably described me as, or at least I hope that's how I came off. But although I had accepted uh, acceptance from my peers, I was not satisfied with the relationship. And although that year I had a girlfriend or two at separate times, mind you, um, my innermost longings were not satiated. And although my, my body was finally changing in the way I thought would lead me into manhood, I felt more like a boy than I ever had before. In taking, in taking a step back from my life and doing what God asks Israel to do through Haggai, to give careful thought to your ways, I realized that what I hungered for I did not have or I would be satisfied. And what I thirsted for I did not have because my thirst would be quenched. I was cold and hollow, even with the outward appearance of good character that I was trying so hard to portray to others. And the rich life that I claimed to have was always emptied out of the holes of disillusion in my pockets. Giving careful thought to my ways did not give me the answer I was hoping for, but it did lead me into the arms of the one who actually does satiate those desires. Cool? You guys following me? Okay. My thoughts go immediately to the potent and challenging words of Jesus to his disciples when they tell him that he should eat. This is right after he uh, meets this woman at a well and speaks to her for five minutes. She runs into town and she says, come see a man that's told me everything about myself in five minutes. Uh, and then they come back and they're probably a little like, why are you talking to that Samaritan woman? There's a lot there. Um, but it picks up here. They say, Jesus, you need to eat. And he responds, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to do the will of my father, is what he says, and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. God tells the Israelites, you eat but are, not, are never satisfied. Then Jesus tells his disciples that he has food that they know nothing about. And he says this, my food is to do the will of my father. What am I saying here? I'm asking you to give careful thought to your ways. Consider your ways, God says. Then he goes on to tell us that all the ways that we aren't satisfied because we aren't after the right sustenance. What happened to me in eighth grade was that I saw for the first time what I actually value. Another hero of the faith, Winky Pratney, he says it like this, the heart of obligation comes from the value of the thing that speaks to it. And it's okay if that doesn't totally make sense, because it didn't the first time I did it, and I printed it on a t-shirt. 
Um, we give priority in our lives to the things we value. We give priority in our lives to the things we value. The heart of the obligation comes from the value of the thing that speaks to you. Is another way we could say it. Um, we, we give priority in our lives to the things we value. But the question I was confronted with then and still check myself on today is, do I put value on the things that are valuable? Do I put value on the things that are actually valuable? Because I put value on something. You do too. But is what you're putting value on actually worth it, actually valuable? Everyone values something. It's easy to see what someone values because it's the thing that they spend all their energy, effort, and time on. Um, I'm asking you to once again search your life, to consider your ways, and ask, do I put value on the things that are valuable? I suppose the way to do this is to define value, right? What is, what is valuable? Now, the value that I'm thinking of might be different from the value you have on a thing. For example, you see a minivan back there? A minivan would be, in my opinion, one of the most valuable vehicles a man can have. One of the most valuable vehicles a man could have. I see a brand new Toyota Sienna like that with proximity unlocking where I can keep the keys in my pocket. Um, the, the little sensor... The little sensor you can run your foot underneath the car because your hands are full of groceries and children and it opens up all by itself. Um, the transition from six cylinders to four cylinders on the highway so you can get, get her better gas mileage. And I swoon. I swoon. I'm just like, oh, yes. That's the car for me. Is anyone with me? Yeah. Some people. Some people are like, what in the world are you talking about? Of course not everybody's with me. The things that are valuable in that minivan are utility, but the van itself really isn't that valuable. You tracking? Another example would be money. I'm not talking about the numbers or, for most college students, the lack of numbers in your, in your uh, bank account when you log in, but actual paper money, right? If you pull out a $100 bill... It, of course, has value. If you, um, it, after Chi Alpha, you can go get food, you can pay your water bill or any other thing, um, but does it have value in itself? No. It's a piece of green paper. Right? So is it important? Yes. It's a piece of green paper that I think has Ben Franklin's face on it. I actually didn't look it up because I, I hold so few $100 bills that I actually don't know. But I think it's Ben Franklin. Uh, the word for something that has value in and of itself is called intrinsic value, meaning that it has value all by itself. What, might I ask, has value in and of itself? A diamond has value, right? It's precious. Another word for that is rare. Or um, so we're told. They keep making more diamonds and keep finding them. So you're like, how do you... <laughs> um, some of the, the girls in here are starting to receive diamonds on their fingers that, that's how you know it's spring <laughs> um, <laughs> moving on in some places water actually has that same value right it's precious it's precious to people it's rarity gives its value um, it's my belief that the Lord actually fits this definition completely and no other thing could Intrinsic value, it's value in itself. And I think that the Lord, ultimately, without going into explanation or argument, 
would have the utmost intrinsic value. Here we have a God uh, that is above the material, even created it. Every diamond, every drop of water was made and is sustained by his hand. God in and of himself is the most valuable being, most valuable thing in existence. We didn't vote him in and we can't vote him out. He has no beginning and no end. He is as powerful as he is loving. And this is the kicker. The object of his affection is you. The object of his affection is you. The heart of obligation comes from the value of the thing that speaks to it. If the Lord is the most valuable thing ever and his affections are for you, then this truth by Winky Prattney can only mean that the obligation to the Lord is utmost. Have you realized the value of our Lord? Does his, uh, does his very existence and pursuit of you push you in, um, in a gratitude and a willing surrender to serve him and to love him? Is his very existence and pursuit of you, does his very existence and pursuit of you push you into a gratitude and a willing surrender to serve him and to love him? In the middle of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus asks his disciples who people say he is. He, sa- he just asks them, who, who, do, who do people say the Son of Man is? They reply, some say John the Baptist, which is absurd to me because they were alive at the same time and John the Baptist was just executed. Um, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? So now it becomes personal. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Many of us in this room have heard a lot about Jesus, have been told by others who he is and why he is significant. But that wasn't what Jesus was. Uh, but that wasn't what Jesus said was important. Who do people say that I am? Jesus said. People say that you are a well-respected, influential, dead man. Was the response. I don't think that's very different from our culture today. When you ask people who Jesus is, um, most of them don't hate him, but most of them don't love him. They say he. Uh, He's a well-respected, influential dead man. Um, They might tell you that he was a prophet or a teacher. They might even say that he is the Son of God, but only because they've heard it from someone else and don't actually believe it in their own life. But when the disciples were asked, who do you say that I am? I kind of picture them sitting there awkwardly. You know, like, well, who do others say that I am? Oh, they say, you know, you're... Um, John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah. Uh, they probably named all the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say <laughs> who do you say I am? And I picture sitting like people sitting in a, a lecture with a professor or even a small group. And then, you know, your small group leader asks that question and you're just like. <laughs> <laughs> or you look at the person. And so either they all looked at Peter. But in my opinion, I think Peter, I think Peter stuck there and looked right back at Jesus because he knew. Right. And um, here's uh, Peter has heard from God and knows exactly who this man is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Implicit in this statement are so many things. You are our savior. You are the rightful king. You are the willing lamb. You are the Christ. This is what Peter says. So, here's the question tonight. Who do you say that Jesus is? And when I ask that question, it can't just be described with the words. If our answer is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then do our lives show that? Do our lives show that? Cool. Um, Daniel, if you want to go ahead and come back up. Uh, we'll close with this. When you are on campus at work with your friends or with your family, are you prioritizing Jesus or do you value something greater? When you are alone in your room at night, are you living a life that believes Jesus to be the most valuable thing? Or do your decisions put your happiness in front? Tonight, there are two things that I want you to take away with you. The first is this. You prioritize your life around the things that hold the most value to you. You prioritize your life around the things that hold the most value to you. The second thing is this. Jesus is the most valuable, most worthy person, most worthy being, most worthy entity and thing in the universe. So you prioritize your life around the things that you hold those, uh, most valuable. And Jesus is the most valuable, most worthy person in the entire universe. Um, while we have worship playing in the background, I want us to take um, the next five minutes or so um, considering our ways before the, before the Lord. Does that sound good? So a little direction. Um, you might be here tonight and are realizing that you have never experienced a revelation of who Jesus is. You have heard from so many people who he is, but have never tasted and seen for yourself. I ask you to begin praying and asking the Lord to reveal himself to you tonight, right here in this room. Being a Christian is not taking someone else's word for it, but experiencing, experiencing it firsthand. Experiencing firsthand who Jesus is. So you're not taking somebody else's word for it. It can start there, and that's great. Um, but um, the, the Bible says, come taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say, come, come here from somebody else. Right? Being a Christian is not taking someone else's word for it, but experiencing firsthand who Jesus is. So you might be here tonight and really have had a revelation of Jesus in your life, but have allowed other things to take priority over him. I'm talking jobs, school, relationships, family, and anything else. And those are good things, but they are all gifts from the giver. And we can't substitute the giver from the gift. When we begin to value something over Jesus himself, we place a value on that thing that doesn't belong there. Um, I'm not asking you to consider dropping out of school or to disown your family tonight, but I am asking you to be honest with what takes utmost priority in your life. If the utmost is not Jesus, after he, after he has been revealed to you already, um, then the thing you prioritize, the Bible calls a false God. And it needs to go. It needs to be gone. 
Pray for a fresh revelation of who Jesus is, and then lay that false God at the feet of Jesus, metaphorically or literally. Give it to Jesus and see what he can do with it. Cool? If you're here tonight and Jesus has been revealed to you and you know that you know that you know that you know that he takes utmost priority in your life, then I ask you to pray for a greater understanding of who he is and what he has done. In the kingdom of God, responsibility is the miracle grow, and we are responsible for what we know. So if we know more of God, we're responsible for more of God. If Jesus has revealed himself to you, then the next step is to allow him to do through you what he has done in you. So there's the challenge. If you eat, and you eat, and you eat, but you don't get up from the couch, then naturally, you'll get fat. Right? In the same way, if you eat spiritual food and do not exercise it, um, then you'll get spiritually fat and spiritually lazy. So ask the Lord tonight what he would have you do to be more responsible to what you know to be true. Does that sound good? So I kind of I hit three categories. Um, I'm assuming each person in this room hits one of those. Um, so let's just spend time, Daniel, we'll um, play some worship and... Uh, let's spend time getting real and asking um, what I'm asking you to do and what God is asking you to do is to consider your ways. Consider who you are. What do you value? Um, do you value something greater than the thing that's most valuable in the entire universe? Cool? All right, let's pray.